Stefan. Good morning. I'm loud. Without the mic, I'm loud. But with the mic, I'm really loud. All right. Good morning once again. Thank you, Robert, uh, for the excellent time of music and worship uh, that we could sing and praise to the Lord and just uh, great things to be reminded of. Um, His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood and that on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand. Uh, just some beautiful thoughts there. If you could and if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we've been looking at uh, the book, at the letter of 1 Thessalonians that Paul has written and looking at the heart of the Apostle Paul. What is his heart uh, for the fellow believer? Um, and we have come to chapter 4. We, we've seen so many things Uh, In this short letter from chapter 1, as Paul opens up and says, hey, everyone knows who you are, uh, Thessalonians. Uh, The word has spread about your faith and love. Uh, You've been this great encouragement. You've been this great testimony. Even in in this world of idolatry, even in this crazy world that you live in that is going on around you. And then chapter 2, he goes on. And then chapter 3, he hits that encouragement point. And then finally, here, we get to chapter Four. Um, I don't know if any of you saw the Instagram post or the Facebook post that was put up this week, but uh, the title of today's message is, is Walking Personally and Walking Personably with Hope. So walking personally, that's you and God. Walking personably, that's you and others. And obviously walking, doing both of those things with hope. And walking is something, it's a daily mundane activity to us. Um, Unless we have a lower body injury, a medical condition, or we've lost the ability to do so based upon paralysis or something else, um, it's something we really don't think about or even see as a big deal, right? We, We don't really think about walking. We don't say, oh, you know, I walked out of my bedroom to the kitchen this morning. Woohoo! I made it. No, we don't really do that. Um, The only time we actually Praise walking is if somebody does it in a big feat. Uh, we think about hikers, climbers who, who go up large mountains like Everest, K2, Kilimanjaro. They are walking. They are walking up the mountain. Yes, sometimes it's hand over hand. Um, sometimes you are climbing vertically. But most of the time, those people are walking at a slow pace, but they're going up to plus 29,000 feet. How many of us do that every day? No one, really. So that is something we celebrate. We're like, wow, they, they did that. Or even maybe something a little bit more local to us, our own Alan Wilkes walked from here to Toronto. He walked. Um, He made it. Uh, (laughs) He did a great job. It was awesome to see him do that. Uh, He wanted to know if he could do it, and he did it. And those of us who were following him, we were like, oh, man, this is great. You know, he shared his story on his blog, and it it was wonderful to see that. And we celebrated that with him. In fact, when he got to Toronto, his, his family was waiting for him and cheering him on those last few miles. So it was amazing to see that. But, but nowadays, um, with our better means and multiple options of transportation, walking has been put on the back burner, so to speak. You know, we have cars, we have buses, we have trains, we have planes, um, we have Uber, we have Lyft, um, we have friends. Um, we have all these different ways to, to transport ourselves. 
Um, and like I said, the only time it really takes significance is if we lose the ability to do so or if somebody does it by accomplishing a great feat. Um, other than that, we pay no mind to it. However, that wasn't the case for the Apostle Paul in his day. Um, it wasn't the case as he wrote this letter to the Thessalonians. Walking back then, walking at this time in the first century A.D., was still a very big part of everyday life. Um, for most people, it was their only means of transportation. Yes, you had donkeys. Yes, you had camels. Yes, you had horses. And maybe the wealthy, really wealthy, and the high-ranking government officials might have had a chariot, a.k.a. the Romans. Um, but most people, when they wanted to get from point A to B, they strapped up the sandal, hitched up the britches, and off they went. They walked. And the thing was, you took into consideration how long it was going to take you to walk, how long it was going to take you to travel. Um, you wanted to be able to plan your trip accordingly. If you were going great distances, you wanted to make sure you had certain stops set up along the way so you weren't out in the middle of the desert or the wilderness. That could be a scary thing when it's pitch black dark and robbers and thieves are just waiting for you in, in the shadows uh, to, to steal and beat you and leave you bloody, um, as Jesus points out in the story of the Good Samaritan. But you took into consideration how long it was going to take you to get there, and sometimes you would even consider if it's even worth it to go there. You know, some of us would say, oh, 11 miles, I can, I can drive that in like five minutes, you know, maybe, maybe 10 minutes, depending on the, upon the traffic in New Jersey. If you're on the interstate, you know, who knows, um, maybe 10, 11 minutes, you know, it takes you to go 11 miles. But walking, that actually takes most of the day. I've done an 11-mile hike up uh, at the Appalachian Trail, and we were booking, and that took us about five, six hours over rocky terrain, with stops. So that's, that's 11 miles. That's how far it takes to walk 11 miles, maybe a little bit more, maybe eight hours. But that's most of the day. So this is, what, this is the atmosphere that Paul is writing in. This is something that is very well known and very well understood by him and those around him. And so much so, he loved to use this, this metaphor, this picture of how a believer in Christ should live his or her life. He knew how important walking was in a daily life, and he knew all the more how important the Christian walk was for a believer in his daily life, his or her daily life. And so as we come to this portion of the letter, as we come to chapter 4 here, and we'll see in a minute, we see Paul once again encouraging believers in how they should walk. Um, he's just recounted how he misses them, how he longs for them, how he's been encouraged by the report that, that Timothy has brought back in chapter 3. And how the Thessalonians are keep, keeping on in their faith. And now he wants to make sure that they have what they need to keep going, keep walking, and pleasing God. So with that in mind, let us read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, all in one shot. Here we go. Finally then, brothers, I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. So finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, 
but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's just pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity that we have to look at this portion of Scripture and uh, to see the heart of Paul and to see what you have laid on his heart uh, to write to all believers, whether they be in the first century A.D. in Thessalonia or they be right here at Tower Road Bible Chapel in Fanwood, New Jersey. So, Lord, we just pray that as we look at these things and, and talk about these things, Lord, we just pray that our hearts and minds will be opened to what you have to say through your Spirit, and that we will be able to take these things that Paul writes to us and urge, urges us and encourages us to consider and apply them to our lives so that we may walk with you in the way that you want us to. We just ask and pray all these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so first up, we have here in verses 1 through 8, walking personally, walking personally. It's an encouragement, once again, as I said before, to keep it up. Paul says, hey, you're doing this well. You've received the instructions I gave to you that first time I was with you or the last time I was with you. And keep on going. Keep walking. Don't stop. You're doing good. The reports I've heard, everything that's come back to me, you're doing good. And I want to encourage you to keep going, to build off what you've already been taught. I've taught you so many things. I've instructed so many things with you the last time I was with you. Keep building off of that. And he says, we want you to walk in a way that pleases God. So what is that walk in the Christian's life called? Well, Paul doesn't have to leave us hanging. He tells us. He says, this is the will of God, right there in verse 3, your sanctification. You know, so often we, we say, hey, what is the will of God in my life? And the Bible is very vague. It doesn't say, hey, this is the will of God here, this is the will of God here, this is the will of God here, this is the will of God here. It doesn't really do that for many things. However, in this chapter, in this verse, it is quite clear. It says, the will of God is your sanctification. In fact, in Thessalonians, there's two places here in chapter 4 and then later in chapter 5, where it actually says what the will of God is. Clear, plain, simple. So here it says, the will of God. Paul is writing, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is our path as believers. That is supposed to be our walk as Christians, in pleasing God. What is sanctification? What is sanctification? Dare I pull the audience? Dare I ask? Does anybody have an idea of what they might think sanctification is? I'm serious. This is not a rhetorical question. 
Who, thinks, who knows what sanctification is? Oh, I have two hands. Seal. Set apart to God or set apart by God. Linda. Agreed. Head shake. That's two. <laughs> so, so, yeah, set apart to God. Anybody else? Everyone's scared to answer. It's okay. We experience this in the high school group all the time. <laughs> okay. Well, those, that is great. That is like when we break it down and say, hey, can you give me a simple meaning of what sanctification is? Yes, set apart to God. That's the simplest definition uh, that we have there. Um, but also think about it this way, becoming more like God in your life and less like the world that we live in. Becoming more like God, becoming more Christ-like, being led more by the Holy Spirit and being less uh, led by the desires and lusts and sinfulness of this world. Living the life that God has called us to and doing it in the way he intends us to do it. So living a life that God has called us to and in the way he intends us to do it. In fact, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance or of the world, but as he, God, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So there is this call. As a believer, as a Christian, we have been called to sanctification. We have been called to walk in that path. We have been called to walk in a way that pleases God, that is more like him, that is set apart to him, set away from the world. That is our path. That is our destination. Are we there yet? No, no. Like I said, I've done hiking before. I've done three miles, I've done four miles, I've done overnights, and you know you, there's, there is a final destination. There is an end point when you walk. You know, there is a goal. We don't just walk aimlessly, I hope not. Uh, usually those people who do, we, we question their sanity. But hopefully when we walk, we have an end point, and that's what Paul is saying. There is an end point to this. Yes, your goal is to ultimately become more and more like God, but there is an end point to this. It's to be like him, to be holy as he is holy. And how do we do that? Well, we have the scriptures to tell us. He's left us the Holy Spirit, a helper, a guide to show us how to walk this way. We're not left alone. We have these little signposts. We have these little trail markers. We just did the moose on the loose for VBS. You know, if you've ever been out camping and hiking, you follow the trail markers to stay on the path. And that's what we have. That's what we've been called to. This is the path. This is the walk that we need to follow as believers. Sanctification. Being set apart to God. We've been called to it. That's what we should be living in. And are we perfect at it yet? No. It is a process. It is a growing thing. It is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment thing. And you know what? It looks different for everybody. We all struggle with different things. We all know where our different sins are. We all know who we are. And we're different from everybody else. And the Lord knows that. And he wants to help us. He wants to guide us. He wants to draw us closer to him and get us to go away from those things of the world, those sinful desires, and be more like him. That is the goal. That is the desire. And what's the biggest hindrance to that? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't, you know, <laughs> Paul doesn't leave us wondering or leave us hanging once again. He says right after, this is the will of God, your sanctification, it says this, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, this is a touchy subject. And don't worry, we're not going to spend a whole ton of time on this. We can have, you can have conferences on abstaining from sexual immorality. It is, it is a big topic. Um, it is a big, it was a big problem 
in the Greco-Roman world during this time. Uh, it's still a big problem today. But just to give you a, <clears throat> an idea of what was going on, you know, people were, like today, were encouraged to explore their sexuality, uh, so to speak. I'll leave it at that. Um, we know from even Jesus' writing, John the Baptist, sometimes uh, guys would take their brother's wives and, you know, marry them and say, "Be you know, you're my wife now. Or we would see, obviously, we know what adultery is, having, you know, sex with someone outside of marriage, someone who is not your husband or wife, someone who is not your spouse. Um, even Caligula, the Roman emperor who came after Tiberius and before uh, Claudius and before Nero, uh, he was known to have sex parties in his palace uh, quite often. In fact, it was seen as a deplorable thing But this is what was going on in the Greco-Roman world. You were encouraged to explore this, to see, I don't know, how how far you could go or how how far you could take it or how pleasurable it was to you, but this was a big problem. And Paul is saying this is one of the biggest hindrances, believers, to, you know, your sanctification walk. So sexual morality is this, very simple. Any sexual act or thought that is committed outside the framework of marriage that God established and ordained. I'll read that again. Any sexual act or thought, remember Jesus said, hey, if you look at a woman and think lustful thoughts in your mind, in your heart, you've committed adultery. That's sexual immorality. Any sexual act or thought that is committed outside the framework of marriage that God established and ordained. Obviously, adultery comes to mind, but there's so much more. In fact, the Greek word here for sexual immorality is the word pornea, which we get the word pornography from. So we see the connection. We see the negativity behind the word. We see how serious Paul is about this and why he mentions it. He says, number one thing that you should abstain from in your sanctification walk is sexual immorality. We could easily make a list of what falls under that scope. I'm sure some of us have already done it in our head this morning, but for the sake of time or for the sake of other people getting squeamish, we won't do that, okay? We'll spare us. Um, And we've made that list in our heads, and what it includes, we all most likely know we're almost likely aware of. We see it on our TV screens. We see it in movies. We see it everywhere in our society. We hear about it in our schools and in our workplace. You know, and if you haven't, if you're unaware, you've probably been living in a cave or under a rock for the last century. Um, but we have a good idea of what sexual morality, immor- immorality is. You know, because just like the Greco-Roman world, our society flaunts it so much and encourages it so much, you know, it's almost become norm. And that's scary. And in our sanctification walk, in our walk to be set apart to God from the world, this is something we have to abstain from. Think about it. It is, it is a wrecker of lives. It messes up our personal sanctification walk as believers. It messes up our relationship with God. It makes us disregard God and what he has for us. It makes us disregard how we treat or view others, male or female, how we view other people, what taking advantage of them. It also um, makes us disregard how we treat or view ourselves, you know, if we just let it go and let it become rampant. And we have seen, unfortunately, so many cases how it wrecks people in political positions. I mean, we just think of upstate New York with the governor and the senators and all that was going on a few years ago. Um, We see how it even affects and impacts and messes up ministries. We hear about pastors who struggle with pornography. and We're like, how can this happen? And we just see how it wrecks those lives. And ultimately, we see how it wrecks families and friendships and all these other things. It causes a mess. It wrecks things a ton. 
And that's why Paul is saying, you need to abstain from this. This is number one on the list because it does the most damage if you let it go. Not just in the Greco-Roman world, but here in Western civilization in the United States of America. In other letters of Paul, he uses strong words against sexual immorality. In Ephesians 5.3, he says that it's not even to be named among us as believers, as, as don't have any identification with it. Not even named among you, not even mentioned about you. Colossians 3.5 tells us to put it to death. It says, put to death what is earthly in you. And the first thing at the top of that list is sexual immorality. And then third, Galatians 5.19 calls it the works of the flesh, which wage war against the Holy Spirit, which wage war against your walk in sanctification. So it is a big, big deal. And as Paul reminds us there in verse 4, we have been called to self-control in holiness and honor, not impurity, not unholiness, but we have been called to be self-controlled, to know how to control our own bodies in holiness and honor to the Lord. And right there at the verse 8, it says, if we don't, we're not disregarding man, we're disregarding God ultimately and his Holy Spirit, the one that he has sent to help us, the one he has sent to guide us and point us in the direction to keep walking in that path of sanctification. And when we disregard him, we basically say, I don't need you. Nor do I even want to be on your path anymore. I want to go my own way. I want to explore this avenue. I don't need to stay here anymore. I want to deviate. And Paul is saying, this is how serious it is. If we want to stay on that sanctification path, this is numero uno thing that you need to abstain from. God's will, his aim, his intention, his desire for us is to walk with him and to become more like him and less like the world. We are to see his beauty in this newness of life that we have in him. You know, Romans 6, 4 says, walk in the newness of life. Um, and ultimately, we are to point others in being sanctified and in, in, in staying on this path and staying in this process. We are to point others in this world as we separate ourselves from it and separate to God. We are to point others to him, Matthew 5, 16, we know it well. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. Think about that. As you walk the path of sanctification, as we walk the path of sanctification, we are being lights to others. We are pointing others to God. We're saying, yes, I am separate from the world and what I do and how I act and and, in self-control and holiness and impurity. And I am different, yes, because I am set apart to God. That is the one who has called me. That is the one who I'm following. That is the one who I'm living for. And hopefully it shines the light into the dark world so that they may be drawn to to the Father and that they too may join us as well on our walk. So our walk, our sanctification is vital to living out the Christian life in today's world. It is vital. That's why Paul mentions it. It's number one. Our personal walk with God, our relationship with him, this sanctification path is key. We have been saved. Now we're being sanctified. And that is what the Lord wants us. He wants us to be more like him and draw closer to him um, so that one day, you know, when we come and see him face to face, we can rejoice in the life that we live for him. So that's walking personally. That's between you and God. 
And Paul moves on to verses 9 through 12, and he talks about walking personably. Yes, it's important to walk in holiness, but you know what? We're not hermits. We don't live in caves. Hopefully we don't shut ourselves up in our homes and and say, I'm never going to see anybody ever again or never want to see the light of day again. No, we're we're not like that. Most of us are here. We're in a social circle, so we're we're handling it okay. You know, even if we're introverted, we're doing all right. (laughs) When Robert said, say hello to somebody this morning, I'm sure if you didn't get up and say hello to somebody, somebody else came over and said hello to you. It's okay. So we're all here in this social circle. We're all being personable. You know, we're all interacting in some way shape, or form. The Christian word in, in this case is fellowship. Uh, we're all fellowshipping together. But this personable walk, this second part of our walk, is basically how we do the first part of our walk, the personal walk, with others. You know, think of the Pharisees. Yes, they were righteous. Yes, they knew all the laws. Yes, they knew all the sacrifices. They were on time with that, and they, you know, they held everything to the T. But we know they weren't very personable in that walk. They were very judgmental. Uh, They were very uncompassionate. You know, they didn't really care how people felt or care how they made people feel or if they hurt them or made them feel good or made that their point was getting across. They just wanted to make sure that the holiness line was drawn straight down the middle and everybody was keeping to it. But how they expressed that and how they shared that and how they showed that, there was no personality. There was no personableness to it at all. Um, and first off, we see right there in verse 9 that Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians and saying, Hey, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You know, I've already seen it. He mentioned it in chapter 1 when he opens up the letter. Hey, your love, your faith is known throughout the whole territory. People know who you are by your love. So I really don't need to tell you anything else. You know as believers that you ought to love one another, just as Jesus said, love, you know, love one another. They will know you are disciples. They will know we are Christians by our love, correct? Yes. Very, very simple statement. In fact, Ephesians 5, 2, Paul writes that we are to walk in love. Ah, walk in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We are to walk in love towards others. A sacrificial, unconditional love. That's how Jesus loved us, correct? Amen? Amen. Amen. We, just, we just celebrated the breaking of bread. I hope we remember that. Yes, that's how Jesus loved us, sacrificially, unconditionally. And here, Paul is saying, this is how you're supposed to love. And he's telling the Thessalonians, I don't need to write anything to you. I just need to keep encouraging you because you're doing that. You are walking in love as Christ loved others. And that's, if we are going to show others how to come to God, if we are going to shine the light in our sanctification walk towards the rest of this world, we need to do it in a loving way. We, we know the multiple passion, passages that are out there. We know 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. You know, love doesn't do this, love does this, love doesn't do this. It's, it is kind, it's not rude, it's not arrogant, it does not boast. You know, as we know at the end there, Paul says, love never fails. These three things remain Um, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest thing that we can show, that we need to walk uh, towards others. In Colossians 3.14, it tells us to put on love because it binds all the other things that Paul has just mentioned in that chapter together. Compassion, humility, meekness, forgiving, 
forbearing. He says, above all, put on love, which, which holds it all together. Everything we are as believers is held together by the love of Christ, and everything we display as believers is to be held together by love itself. It is our belt. It is our girdle. It helps us hitch up our britches and keep walking and keep shining the light for Jesus. Yes, I used hitch up our britches twice. Okay, we can get over that. And then we have 1 Peter 4, 8. 1 Peter chapter 4, Rob. Hey, look, we're back in it again. It says that above all things, we're earnestly to put on love or earnestly to show love. Because why? Love covers a multitude of sins. So as much as important our personal walk is in, in living out the sanctified life and being holy as he is holy, we are to love. We are to show love because why? Love covers a multitude of sins. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. We are not perfect. And if you think you are, we can talk in the lobby in the back because uh, <laughs> I want to know how you're doing it. Um, not judging. I just was like, Ooh, that'd be awesome. Um, but we're not perfect. We know ourselves and we know we're not perfect. We all make mistakes. And if we are going to shine lights and if we are going to draw other people to Christ in our sanctification walk, then we need to show them love. We need to have compassion. What does the gospel say about Jesus when he's about to feed the 5,000 or the 4,000? It says, he looked on them and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion for the lost. Compassion for those who need to hear and need to know Christ and have him in their lives and become more like him. We need more compassion, not judgmental, not uh, blasting people on social media. You know, we don't need to get in a Twitter war um, about certain topics. We need to show love towards others in our actions and in our words. And then ultimately it says we're also supposed to live quietly with others. Um, we're supposed to be gentle. We're supposed to be kind, peaceful examples to other people. And I think it says in Romans, and I could be wrong, but it says, Paul writes, he says, as it is for you, live peaceable with all men. As it is to you. Basically, based on you, you live peaceably with all men. It's based on you, not others. You should be living peaceably with other people. And that's what we've been called to. And that is something that we all struggle with as well, especially once again in the world that we live in today. But we are supposed to be that kind, gentle, peaceful example to other people. Um, and then ultimately, it says to mind your own affairs. Uh, mind your own affairs. Basically, mind your own business. Um, that's, you can say, where does that expression, mind your own business? Well, it comes from the Bible. Mind your own affairs. <laughs> yeah, you're speaking the word of God when you say that. Uh, however, do it in love. You know, sometimes we, we don't do it in love. You know, basically, it's this, and I'm going to use it in this. I heard this one time from somebody in the South, and hopefully you'll understand what it means. Don't always be snooping and pooping in other people's business. Basically, don't be what a dog does, right? If, we ever, if you have dogs, or if you've walked dogs, or if you see dogs, they're always sniffing other areas. They're always like, oh, what's that smell? Oh, What's that? Oh, I gotta go investigate that. I gotta go investigate that. And what happens when they find something that they're not familiar with? Well, you gotta clean it up. We know what they do. You know, they mark their territory. And so often, that's how we think and that's how we interact with other people in their lives. We don't need to be a know it all. We don't need to feel like we need to be in everybody's business and tell everyone how we think they should live. That's not peaceful. That's not gentle. That's not compassionate. That's not minding your own business. Um, yes, we should be concerned and caring for others, and we want to share the life of Christ with them, and we want to see them either come to Christ or be encouraged in their walk with Christ. However, we shouldn't be a nag 
are a nuisance. And once again, it's one of those things I don't think I need to explain to you how that looks. I think we understand. We know what a nag, we know what a nuisance is. And sometimes we know it too well because we are that nag. We are that nuisance. And we're not supposed to be that way. Discernment and wisdom are definitely required when it comes to crossing that line of knowing how to care and show compassion and concern for others and be gentle and peaceful to where you become a nag, a nuisance, and people just want you to get out of their life or go away. We haven't been called to that. We are to show people love without being overbearing and without being a bore or without being a nuisance and a nag that someone doesn't want to hear or someone doesn't want to be around. You know, all these things that Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians and for us to be are the, are the things that impact the world the greatest and draw people to Christ in the best way possible and show people that, yes, this holy, this sanctified life is possible and it's through Jesus Christ. And it's in him that you can live this way and, and walk with him and be with him and, and have things the way God intended it for you to be. You know, but if we're going to make sure that others see that, we have to do it in this way, with love, with peace, not being a busybody, minding our own affairs, but still being compassionate and caring for others. Um, and then finally, we see work with your hands. Don't be idle. Don't be lazy. Um, be a worker. Be involved in the work. Show others that you are trustworthy. Show others that you can be depended upon and show others that you really don't need to be dependent on other people. Um, we think about the disciples. They were fishermen. We think about Jesus. Yes, his ministry, yes. We remember all that he said and did. But remember, he was a carpenter's son. What was his day job? Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus did work before his ministry. Um, Paul, the apostle Paul, he was a tent maker. I don't know how good he was. I mean, I don't know how good a, a Pharisee, a zealous Jew who gets saved goes to being a tent maker. That's kind of like a big, big disparity there. But he was a tent maker, and people bought tents from him. Um, and, you know, it showed when we work, when we get involved in the work, whether it be at our job, at home, or here at church, in ministry, wherever it is, when we show people that we are ready to work, to be involved in the work, it shows that we can be trustworthy. What we say, what we do is trusted. It isn't a scam. It isn't some farce. It's real. It's reality, and I want to know a little bit about it more. We always like things that are real. We like people to be real, and that's what Paul is saying here. When you work in this way, when you get involved in the work in this way, you show people how real you are. You show people how real it is what you're involved with. Um, it's not some reality TV show, because um, those really aren't reality, let's just be honest, but this, it's real life. What you're doing is real life. What you're sharing is real, and what you, you want others to know is real and genuine. So when we do that, when we set that tone, when we set that example, people say, yes, that person is trustworthy. Yes, what they're saying, I want to know more about it. it it's one of those other things that, that draws and attracts others to Christ. It's being a good example to point back to Christ. So we have this concept of walking personally. We have this concept of walking personally. And then finally here in verses 13 through 18, the idea of doing all that, walking in those two things with hope, with hope. You know, if, if we don't have hope in something, why even do it, right? <laughs> if you don't have hope in an outcome or hope in what's to come, if there is no hope, then you're pretty much not going to want to be involved with anything. Um, and so here Paul is, is bringing 
this idea of walking with hope. And how does he do it? Well, he does it in kind of a, a little bit, I don't want to say a backwards way or a backdoor way, but just a little bit opposite way of thinking. Um, Paul wants the Thessalonians and wants us as believers to not be uninformed or to not be ignorant um, about our hope, about what happens to us when we die, uh, what happens to us after this life here on earth. Um, you see, he really didn't get a chance to explain all this to the Thessalonians the last time he was with them. He got ripped away or torn away, as we know, as he wrote, um, and, you know, from the city and had to leave because of the persecution. And they had, some of them had taken the negative, pessimistic view of the time uh, about those who died. Um, in this world, in the Greco-Roman world, there was a very pessimistic view on death. I mean, maybe as there is today. Um, and many of the believers thought that those who died before Christ came back, they were all like, oh, Christ is returning soon, hallelujah, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And those who were dying, they thought were technically lost, um, just like the pagan way of thinking. You die, you're pretty much lost, gone, you know, nothing thereafter. Um, and they think that because they had died before Christ coming back, they had missed out on it, that they weren't going to be there. Um, that they missed out on this eternal life. And Paul's saying, no, no, that's not the case. That's why he uses the word asleep. You know, when we as believers view death as sleep, as we are passing from one thing to another. Um, when you sleep, you pass from one stage to another. So we as believers don't see death as the ultimate thing. We kind of see it as that passage from here, this life here on earth, to a life with God in heaven for all eternity. Um, yes, it starts here on earth, but we make that transition where we lose this mortal body and put on immortality, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. And Paul is saying, I want you to know this, that even those who die before Christ come, comes back, they will be with the Lord. In fact, he says there at the end, we will all be with the Lord, whether we have fallen asleep or whether we're still here when he comes back. It doesn't matter. We will all be with the Lord. Um, so don't worry. This life you're living, this walk you're on, this sanctification walk, this personal walk, this personable walk of love and peace and work and not being a busybody, not being nosy, not being a nuisance, you know, you can all say, I can keep doing this. I can keep at this thing because I have a hope. Because no matter whether I die here today on earth or Christ comes back, I know I will be with the Lord for all eternity. I will see him, as 1 John 1 says, one day, and I will be like him. No matter whether I die here or he comes back before that happens. And so that is the encouraging words. That's why he says, encourage one another with these words. Keep at it. Keep walking. Because you will be with him one day. You will be with him one day. As Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.8, or 1 Corinthians 5.8, I think it is. No, wait. Hmm. might be 1 Corinthians. It's one of the Corinthians 5.8. might have wrote it wrong here. That we will be absent from the body and present with the Lord. When we die, or whether he comes back, we will be absent from this body, and we will be present with the Lord. It is instantaneous. It is not a, a holding pattern. It is not a lobby that we have to sit in. We will be with the Lord for all eternity. And that's why Paul can say in, in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because when I die, I will be with him for all eternity. Yes, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I live it with that hope in mind that when I do die, when my time comes here on earth to no longer be here or he comes back, I will be with him. And that is gain. 
That is my hope. That is the end goal that will always be there in sight. And it is reachable and it is attainable. We have a glorious and living hope in God through Jesus Christ. And if we are going to walk this personal and personable um, life, if we're going to walk personally with God in sanctification and walk personally towards others, then we need to walk it with this hope in mind. This hope that one day we will see him and we will be like him. We will be with him. Um, It makes everything worth it. It keeps us focused on the internal more than the temporal. And without the hope, it is worthless. This living hope that is promised to us, um, as 1 Peter says, it's an inheritance, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. It's waiting so that one day when you get there, you will truly receive that inheritance that you have in the Lord, that hope that you have that you've been holding on to will come to fruition in that day. As Andy Dufresne writes to Red at the end of the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. The hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is a good thing. It is the best of things, and we know it will never die because he is the one who has promised it to us. He is the one who has been dead, buried, rose again, and is seated at the right hand of the throne on high and will come one day back for us so that we may be with him forever, absent with the body, present with the Lord. So let's be encouraged. Let's take courage, so to speak. Let's urge one another. Let's encourage one another to walk personally and to walk personally and to do it with hope so that we can please God and that we can show others how pleasing it is to know him and to live for him as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter and for this chapter and this heart of Paul's, Lord, that you have um, shown us and that you have displayed uh, through his writings. And Lord, we are, are thankful for all the things that he has shared. And Lord, some of it is very, very personable, uh, very personal. Um, and Lord, we are thankful that it, it shows us how we should live with you and walk with you and please you, Lord. And ultimately, it shows how we should live with others and towards others. And that we have this great hope Uh, that one day we will see you and we will be with you. We will be absent from this body and present with the Lord. And that is something that should keep us going. It is a good thing, the best of things. And we know it will never die uh, because the one who promised it to us is alive forevermore. Uh, So, Lord, we just pray that that hope that we have in you would drive us, would urge us and encourage us to walk in sanctification and to walk in love towards others um, and to be that example for you to them, to be lights Uh, so that they may come and praise and glorify our Father in heaven as well. So help us to do these things, Lord. Help us to know what it means to walk um, in sanctification. Uh, Help us to know what it means to abstain from things like sexual immorality that that wreck our walk, that take us away from it and pull us off from it, Lord. Um, Help us to know how to remove that from our lives. And ultimately, Lord, help us to know how to live that towards outsiders as well, all with the hope in mind. We thank you for this time and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.